Welcome again, friends. Thank you for joining us for The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, a weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and put into practice. My name is Gwen DeSelm, and it is my pleasure to be your host for this time together. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry and was the founding senior pastor of a church called Fellowship in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Currently, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering help and hope to everyday pastors through coaching and other resources. You can find out more about us at davedeselmministries.org. Well, we've come to the final episode in our series on the seven churches of Revelation. It's Jesus' letter to the church at Laodicea, with a warning for them and for us against perhaps the greatest danger we face in our discipleship. Now, at the beginning of this message, Dave mentions a couple of famous religious paintings from the early 20th century. If you're curious to see what they look like, we've put them in this episode's show notes. Just go to davedeselministries.org slash podcast slash 144, and you can take a look there. Now, let's go ahead and dive into today's teaching, but be sure to stay with us at the end for a special closing word from Dave. If you brought a Bible with you, would you open it up one more time to the book of Revelation in chapter 3? We've been engaged for a teaching series on the seven churches of Revelation, seven literal congregations that existed in the first century in modern-day Turkey. And Jesus had a specific word to each one of these local congregations. To some, he gave warm words of affirmation. I see you doing this, and I'm so pleased. To others, he gave strong words of correction. I also see what you're doing here, and I am not pleased. We discovered along the way that Jesus not only had words for them, he has words for us. That we can read their mail, if you will, And many of us recognize, boy, that was for me. That wasn't just for the Ephesians, that was for me. That wasn't just for the Philadelphians, that was for me. And today, by God's grace, you'll find yourself thinking, that wasn't just for the lay. I'll begin my talk this morning by asking you a question. How many of you are familiar with the name Warner Salmon? Warner Salmon. One. And I know why, Billy, because you're an artist too. He was an artist who lived in the last century. Maybe you're not familiar with Warner Salmon, but my guess is some of you might be familiar with his most famous work. Take a look. How many of you are familiar with this? Yeah, yeah. You, me, and about 500 million others. Because the fact of the matter is there were 500 million prints of the head of Christ by Warner Salmon painted in 1941 that have been sold. Maybe it was on the wall in your house where you're growing up or the church you attended. If you are familiar with that picture, you might be familiar with another picture from Warner Salmon. Take a look at this one here. How many have ever seen this one? Notice the same head of Christ. Everyone knows how Jesus looked in 1941. So uh, there he is there. This is called Christ at the Door. And the the impetus for this painting was a verse that was embedded in the text that we're going to be looking at in just a moment. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with them and they with me. There were words that were shared with the church at Laodicea. What do we know about that city? We know quite a bit. 
Of all the seven sites, seven cities, Laodicea has been the most excavated. Every year in modern-day Turkey, more and more ruins from Laodicea come to the surface. Uh, It was located on a highway in the Lycus Valley. Really, it was part of a tri-city area. You've got Colossae, 10 miles to the east. You might have heard of Colossae. Paul wrote one of his New Testament letters to the Colossians. They're the people in Colossae. Hierapolis uh, is five miles to the north. So it's part of this five-city system. Now, here's what's interesting as you look at that map. Colossae, as you can see topographically, was at the foothills of a mountain range. As such, with with the spring runoff, Colossae had access to crystal clear, ice-cold water. It was known for its clear, cold water. Hierapolis, up there to the north five miles, was known for something else. It had hot springs, mineral baths that people could bathe in for medicinal purposes, hot water. Colossae, a place of cold water. Hierapolis, a place of hot water. Laodicea did not have any natural water. The water had to be piped 10 miles from Colossae and piped down five miles from Hierapolis for the people to have any water there. More on the implications of that in just a few moments. What else do we know about Laodicea? It was very wealthy. It was by far the most prosperous of all of these cities. For one thing, it was the banking center of the Asian plateau. Gold and silver flowed in and out of Laodicea. It also had a world-renowned medical center that specialized in an eye salve that was in great demand. Back in the first century, eye problems were quite common. And they had this eye salve, which people from far and wide came to access. Thirdly, it was known for its fine black wool. A unique type of goats lived in the area and made beautiful black wool garments. This is what Laodicea was known for. All of this prosperity and wealth grew to such a point that when the earthquake of AD 17, which we talked about last week, which leveled the city of Philadelphia, it also hit Laodicea. Philadelphia was never rebuilt, that little poor town. The Romans decided that since Laodicea was so strategic, they would rebuild that city. And the city fathers of Laodicea said, no thanks, we don't need your help, we'll rebuild it ourselves. Self-sufficiency, prosperity to the max in Laodicea. So what does Jesus have to say to the disciples who occupy the church at Laodicea? Before I answer that question, I'd like you to look at two lines I put in your notes, which may be questions I'd like you to consider during the rest of this talk. Here they are. What if material prosperity does not lead to spiritual prosperity? And second, what if material affluence can result in spiritual indifference? What if the more you get, the poorer you become spiritually? Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were one of the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. By now you know that these words did not come out of the blue. When he talked about hot and cold, instantly the people of that city would have recognized he's talking about the water sources. Question for you. Ten miles away is the ice-cold, crystal-clear water of Colossi's Mountains. By the time it made the ten-mile trek down the pipeline to Laodicea, how cold do you think it was? It wasn't. It was lukewarm. When the hot water from Hierapolis came down from the mineral springs five miles through the pipeline, how hot do you think it was by the time it got to the city? Lukewarm. Can you see why Jesus used that analogy? You've seen the value of something that's white hot. You've seen the value of something that's ice cold. But you know what? There's really little value whatsoever in something that's lukewarm. Now we're talking drinking water here, so I'm a little thirsty, so you'd indulge me. Thank you, Foster. You know, when you talk for a while, it's nothing like having some options up here. And uh, this is, oh, by the way, do you like this thing? Reminds me of home. Every time Gwen rings the bell. What did you think I was talking about? Sometimes... uh, when you've got a sore throat or whatever, and you can just make some hot tea and uh, pour it. And, uh, mm, that's good. Nice, soothing, hot tea. Or maybe you find yourself on a summer's day, and man, there's nothing better than, mm, iced tea. Look good. Have you ever noticed there are times, though, perhaps you leave the cup or the mug or the glass on the counter, and without thinking, you pick it up, and by that time it's become lukewarm, and you, (laughs) (laughs) it's exactly what Jesus is talking about. It's exactly what he's talking about. I would that you either hot or cold, but because of the complacency, the self-sufficiency, the ingratitude, and quite frankly, your spiritual compromise You become lukewarm. In the original Greek text, it says, I'd like to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. You look at these words here among those to all seven churches, and these are arguably the most sharp of any. Indeed, every other church receives at least one positive affirmation. None come to Laodicea. You are self-sufficient. You are complacent. You are ungrateful. You are lukewarm. And you make me sick. I look at this text and I go, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. What's striking is that these people had everything going for them. There was prosperity there. As far as we know, there was no challenge for Christians to work in the marketplace. Many of the Christians made good money. They were doing well. As far as we know, there was no heavy persecution in Laodicea. 
the Christians had a pass. As far as we know, there was no heresy in the church. There were no false teachers on the prowl. This church had everything going for it. And yet, because they had so much, they went lukewarm. Now today there's a lot of discussion as what is the greatest threat to Christianity in our day? There are some who would say the greatest threat to Christianity has to be um, militant atheism. The young atheists who've written multiple books that are getting a lot of print, biggest threat, militant atheism. Others would say no, I think the biggest threat is radical Islam. Still others would say no, it's cultural relativism, it's theological subjectivism, it's the liberal media. Could it be that the greatest threat to Christianity is none of these? What if the greatest threat to Christianity is lukewarm Christianity? Where we're searching broken world is desperately looking for something to be compelling, something to be different, something to be meaningful. And affluent, self-sufficient, and complacent Christians show them nothing but lukewarm apathy. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will continue his message in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast and you haven't done so yet, then please take just a moment to rate, review, and subscribe, and then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Well, as you know, in addition to this podcast, Dave DeSelm Ministries offers other resources for everyday pastors and the people they lead, such as devotionals for everyday disciples. These devotionals are filled with inspiration from God's Word that will encourage you as you follow Jesus every day. We have an archive of over 150 devotionals that you can browse through on our website, davedesalmministries.org. Now let's get back to Dave and the rest of today's teaching. Jesus speaks some strong words here. Verse 15, I know your deeds, you're neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is a serious call to commitment. Jesus did this multiple times as he walked the earth for three years. Time and again, he intentionally chose to thin the crowds, crowds that had gathered because of this compelling teacher, but who wanted to do it their way and have a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on their lives. In Luke 9, he shared these words with them, whoever wants to be my disciple, deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. What's he saying? Are you in or out? Are you in or out? Either follow me like you mean it, or just go follow some other rabbi. Now this challenge that God gave his people happened hundreds of years earlier during a crisis, once more as a spiritual crossroads in the nation of Israel. An evil king and queen had come to the throne, Ahab and Jezebel. Remember I talked about Jezebel a few weeks back? Ahab and Jezebel were the Bonnie and Clyde of their day. Jezebel brought in Baal worship. In a sense, Baal worship, easy religion with a heavy emphasis on money and sex. 
and it was sweeping through Israel. God raised up a prophet by the name of Elijah, arguably one of the greatest of the whole Old Testament. And God said, we're going to deal with this. And Elijah said, I'm your man. So Elijah challenged the 450 priests of Baal to go to a battle of the gods, win or take all. Mount Carmel was the site. And he invited representatives from all 12 tribes of Israel to be there as well. Many of you know the story, how fire came out of the sky. But before that, Elijah gives this word that I think is, this is appropriate to this day. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. You choose. You want to follow Jehovah with all your heart? You're in? Great. If not, knock yourself out. But don't call yourself a disciple. Jesus called the Laodiceans out of this lukewarm middle which he found so offensive. Material affluence led to spiritual indifference. Prosperity led to self-sufficiency. Things that began going so good started going bad because they were so good. Some of you can identify with this readily. You remember what it was like some years back. Maybe you were a poor college student and you're just living by a by a thread, all you know is Jesus. You pray like crazy. You search the scriptures for promises like crazy. And you seek out community like crazy. Maybe you were a single parent and you were raising kids alone and boy did you need prayer, boy did you need the word, boy did you need community. Maybe you're going through a tough financial time and you recognize Jesus is all I have. Then you got the job. Then you got the raise. Then you got the spouse. And now, well, prayer used to be a necessity, but now it's really a luxury. You used to devour the scriptures on a daily basis because it was your only source of encouragement, but now you don't need it. You used to seek out community because you knew that Iron sharpens iron, and you need to be with some sharp friends who just would call it the best with you and confront the worst in you, but now you're too busy because you have so much. And I think Jesus is saying, something's happened. Something has happened to you, and I don't like it. Prosperity carries some threats. Scottish essayist Thomas Carlyle writes, adversity is hard on a man, but for one who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred who can stand adversity. That's a little convoluted, but what he's saying is this. The biggest test is not adversity. The biggest test is prosperity. Only one in a hundred can handle that one. Chuck Swindoll would seem to agree. He writes, not many can carry a full cup, only a few. Sudden elevation often disturbs one's balance, which leads to pride and a sense of self-sufficiency. It's ironic, but most of us can hang tough through a demotion better than through a promotion. Arrogance, self-sufficiency, complacency, ingratitude. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. There's a sense of I did all of this. I did all of this. I don't need God in this. This threat is so real 
back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and if you just hold a finger here and slide back because this text is a little bit extended, I want you to follow along with me. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me set the scene for you as you're making your way back to this fifth book of the Old Testament. The Israelites are getting ready to step into the promised land. Moses will not be going with them. And he's concerned. He's concerned. So he shares these words to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and reverencing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and the hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you'll lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you today. Otherwise, watch this, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud And you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, the thirsty and waterless land, this venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth from me. But remember the Lord your God. He gave you the ability. Complacency, self-sufficiency, arrogance, ingratitude, these are the seeds from which lukewarmness spring to full-grown size. So what counsel does Jesus give this church back in Revelation, verse 18, chapter three? Back to 17. You did not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me, gold refined the fire. What's he saying? You think you're so rich. I tell you where you ought to invest something. Invest something in me. He says, so that you can become rich. White clothes to wear. You, you're so proud of your black robes from the great goat hair, but why don't you recognize how naked you really are? And let me clothe you. And then he says, and salve to put on your eyes. Why? Because you're so blind, you don't, even bec- you don't even understand what you've become. By now, you might be thinking, man, he must not like these people very much. Until you read verse 19, where he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Jesus did not speak this sharply to them because he didn't love them, but because he did. And I think he has a word to many of us in this room. You don't realize what you are becoming. The more you have, the less you are. There was a creeping self-sufficiency and arrogance and complacency and ingratitude. I would that you were the cold or hot. But you've become lukewarm. And you really make me sick. And now comes a familiar verse. But now it's in context. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him. And he with me. Most of the time we hear that verse and we challenge people to embrace Jesus as Savior for the first time. We'll say to people, Jesus is knocking the door of your heart. You ever heard this? Jesus is knocking the door of your heart. Open your heart to him and accept Christ as your Savior for the first time. And I guess that's okay, but that's not the context. Is this verse written to non-Christians? This is for believers. He's saying, you have pushed me to the margin of your life. And I'm not anywhere close where I'm supposed to be if we really have a relationship. You see, to come in and dine was to share a common cup, a common meal, a common life. So I guess the question that you need to ask yourself is this. How long are you gonna leave him outside knocking? There is not a person here who can't learn from the church of Laodicea. Recognizing, oh man, I have marginalized you, I've ignored you, I lived way too much of a lukewarm life. And I want you to return to your rightful place. Please come in. Hey friends, Pastor Dave here. Those last two questions I posed are sobering ones, aren't they? How long are you going to leave Jesus standing out there? And when are you going to open the door to restore the relationship? I've discovered that lukewarmness isn't only a function of compromise or disobedience. It's also a function of careless neglect. All too easily, I can spiritually drift and put the Lord in the back burner. As the old hymn put it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's at times like that when I need to not only assess the state of my heart, but address the state of my heart. To admit to spiritual drift and then to commit to do something about it. Perhaps you're feeling the same way even now. And toward that end, I'd like to pray for us. Lord, I am so grateful that you're still knocking at the door of my heart, that you did not grow weary and walk away. Forgive me for my lukewarmness. Forgive me for not prioritizing our relationship, letting other things get in the way. Even now I open the door that we might regain a vital, vibrant relationship. And now help me to take some practical steps to maintain that relationship. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.